Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Cody, you want to give me that line that made us all groan before? Uh, what? Hey, Jason, quit giving us guff, man. That one. I thought you weren't allowed uh, to do that. I thought we. You do what? Mm, you broke the rule of spoiling the name of the film, and don't say that me saying this is actually spoiling the name of the film. It is because that's it clearly is. you actually a pun are based on the title of this film. Any like, intelligent, I feel like you're doing more to break that rule than I was. We were just going to slide right I, through. I broke up. I broke up a word into two words, like a Snickers bar, just or maybe a kick. You're allowed, <laughs> totally allowed to escalate how much you defend yourself, and you know what I mean. Listen, We're all just waiting Co- for Cody somebody just to shot a missile sure. in my capital <laughs> Break city, rule, and now you know? I'm amassing troops at his border. But l- listen, listen, I just got listen- done listening to a six-part episode about Vince McMahon, and I'm going to say, Aaron, you've been breaking kayfabe a lot lately on the podcast, and I don't know if I support mm. that. You, you I don't know that I'm not a it's kid, possible so. for Aaron to break kayfabe. I don't know that he ever actually has. That's kind of one of the <laughs> great and spectacular things about the Aaron mm. Grossman experience. Mm. <laughs> I, people think there's some sort of kayfabe, but this is 100% all natural. Right. You know, there's no grass fed. No, where does it start? You know where I mean? does it end? Sort of thing. It's <laughs> yeah. postmodernism. Okay. Thank you so much for listening to Try Love Literal Roundtable Podcast. It is about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. I'm walking on air, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I quite simply have the worst haircut ever conceived by man. I'm Cody Narvison, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. There will always be a place for me at the DQ. I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. My name is Aaron. Don't get me going on beans, or I'll be jabbering away till the sun comes up. You can find me on Twitter at RB, please. <laughs> oh, it was really good. Uh, yep. the, today's movie we're discussing is playing as part of the All Hail Parker Posey series at the Trilon. Go to Trilon.org. There's also a link in the show notes to get tickets to that. Check out the Trilon's website for other cool ways to support them as well. Uh, in the meantime, Aaron, give us a quick rundown of what this movie is and what we should expect. Sure. Uh, we are talking about Waiting for Guffman, 1996 film directed by Christopher Guest. Um, the film is a kind of mockumentary style film uh, following the residents of the town of Blaine, Missouri, uh, as they prepare prepare for their 150th anniversary celebration um, by rehearsing a play telling a story of the town. Uh, The play's director and writer, Corky St. Clair, played by uh, Guest himself, um, tells the actors that a New York theater producer named Mort Guffman is supposed to be in attendance uh, and that a success could mean their show makes its way to Broadway. Uh, the film has an ensemble cast, you could say, including uh, Eugene Levy, uh, Fred Willard, uh, Catherine O'Hara, Parker Posey, of course, uh, and Larry Miller, um, as well as various kind of uh, assorted cameos and whatnot from, you know, comedic actors like David Cross and whatnot. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what I got. 
Um, have any of you ever been in like a community theater production? And I mean, like with adults, not just like high school or whatever. No, no. Uh, uh, um, I, I had done some like pit stuff, you know what I mean? Playing music, but not, not acting. I would say not quite the same thing, but it is worth mentioning. I'm sure sure there is a What instrument? Sorry. I I need to know Uh, people need to know what instrument. uh, Trombone. I'm actually kind of surprised by that question because for so much of my life, I was known as a trombone guy, and I've given that up. I think Cody's being facetious. To be fair, oh, I don't. I don't know. (laughs) It's early. (laughs) Do people know I play trombone? Like, Uh, here's here's the thing: Do people outside of this recording know that you play trombone? I don't (laughs) think so. Oh wow, Cody's completely honest. Recording for posterity now. He wants the world to know. He wants the the world to have facts. There's zero percent overlap between like. Aaron's time as trombone guy and his time as one of my friends. So like, yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I remembered that when he said it, but it After was not college, top of mind. Cut it off. He was yeah. in a ska band as a I was trombonist. In a ska band in I high school. forgot that. Yeah, it's more embarrassing than the actual. Uh, I don't. Th- actually I think that's actually cool. the opposite of embarrassing. Yeah, it is. Well, it has come back around. It was. Sure. It was cool when I was doing it. Maybe I don't know. Are you saying that we've entered a fourth perception. wave of ska? <laughs> oh my yes, God. very much so. Or fifth or sixth. Very much so. Uh, by the way, just an unwarranted plug here. Before, I think it was Lady Snowblood, they were playing Japanese ska music at the Trilon, just as like the filler music. Ass, dude. It was so <laughs> fucking good. It was like a distractingly good with the blank screen. Um, I ask because I I did uh, when I was um, in high school and beyond, I was doing like community theater productions and it was with many, you know, members of the community, many adults. And I've seen this movie twice now. This is uh, the second time. I think the last one was like two or three years ago, probably just on a whim. And both times I've gotten different things out of it, but both times I've uh, sort of like recognized a whole lot of those exact personalities. And like, I mean, this is just the personal relationship to the movie type stuff, but there are like, it cannot be overstated how directly these correlate to most folks that you'll run into in a small town community theater, specifically small town. I mean, if you get into larger areas, you start to meet people with who like have talent or the knowledge of the business or whatever Uh, in small towns. Generally, you're not finding that. And it really is a more so than the uh, contemporary examples of, well, more contemporary examples of like the office or parks and rec or whatever. It's like this specific sect of local small town culture that does just map perfectly to these personalities. I have like, there's just a beautiful in, in, in among the uh, members of the community theater in Guff, or excuse me, in Blaine and in uh, like real life, I'm referencing Coldwater, uh, Michigan. It's the town where I grew up. Um, it is, uh, there's a Tibbetts, Opera House is where most of those productions played down. Um, Branch Community Players was uh, anyway, but uh, there's among those residents and the residents of Blaine, there's like this beautiful lack of willingness to accept how like how directly I I, I don't want to invalidate the work or like the the joy that they get out of it, but more or less pointless. Like it will be sort of like lost to the annals of history, put in a local community book at some point. Everything will be that way eventually. Jason. Well, listen, I'm just starting. (laughs) There's there's because they do see the larger picture of it, I think, or maybe they don't. And they just act outside of it. I think they, they have like, uh, and I think that the members of the community in Blaine who are uh, part of this drama group also have that same, like, if admitting that what they're doing on stage that this ridiculous play uh and like would would mean like admitting how meaningless their entire town is and more or less their existence like we spend the first act learning about blaine and learning about how like 
we're poking fun at it entirely. And then the final two thirds of the movie are more or less like sort of showing us how that doesn't matter at all to the members of the community, to, to the people who like actively participate in it. Nobody in this community is completely apathetic about being there. Everybody either like has a slight resentment or everybody really loves being there and doesn't even think for a moment about what their life is like outside of it. Um, I really, really, really enjoy how those, those come to life through those characters. And obviously like, there's a lot to be said for the improvisational skills of all these actors and actresses. Uh, the writing is well, I'm, I'm just giving, trying to give it a, a bit of a glow because I really enjoy watching this movie. Um, I don't know what it would have been like at the trial on. I, there aren't a whole lot of like incredibly obvious jokes. There are just ones that, like play out over the course of a few lines. Uh, so I'm trying to gauge what the audience reaction might have been to this movie, but um, I see a couple hands up, so I'm going to uh, hand the mic off. I'm going to point the spotlight is now being moved slowly to Aaron Grossman. No, thank you. Um, yes, it reminds me quite a bit. I, one thing I thought about while watching the film is the like friendship. Uh, if you haven't heard about this, go go Google it. But there's the friendship that Anthony Bourdain had with like a a like a small town, uh, specifically Grand Forks, uh, like restaurant critic, like this very old woman who like wrote, uh, you know, for her her you know town newspaper, very small. Um, and just was like a restaurant critic and would like, you know, write like small little reviews of like the new Olive Garden. You know what I mean? Um, and and the the thing that he always talked about is like she was like kind of the ideal restaurant critic. We're like actually serving an audience and like very unpretentious, but like still having meaning and like the work that she's doing. And like that is like this kind of very touching, you know, kind of heartfelt uh, thing. This movie is obviously taking a more comedic look at it. But I like, mm -hmm. I was struck that like watching this film, um, you know, I grew up in St. Cloud, Minnesota, which is like a bit too big for, I think what this film is doing, but like, you know, I would, I had relatives in, in, uh, in Iowa. I think anybody who, despite this, this film being set in Missouri, I think that like anybody like grew up in the Midwest probably has been to a lot of towns like this. Right. Um, maybe anywhere in America has that experience, but specifically the Midwest, there's a lot of towns that are like this, that are pretty small, have a few restaurants, have like the dentist, you know what I mean? Have, has like the travel agency. Um, and I guess at the end of the film, like the joke is like kind of on these characters, but like the, the overall tone of the film is like kind of interestingly, like, unpretentious and like actually kind of touching at times in a way yeah. that I think kind of makes the small humor work uh, in a way. Like, I don't think this film like hates any of its characters. I think it is simply pointing out like kind of natural and like undeniable like character traits of like the weirdos who kind of live in this town and want to like, are just like very passionate about putting on this play that they probably don't really have the experience for, but like none of that is like stopping them at all. Um, I, I had not seen this, but like, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I, there's like, I, I think that something like spinal tap, which guest was also in is like kind of a natural comparison point for a lot of like the mockumentary stuff. But I think that like the tone and like small towny nature of this, like is a, a much more like clear lineage to, to something like the office or to, to like uh, like Parks and Rec, even um, than than maybe even something like Spinal Tap. No, I would agree with that. The like handful of I don't know, calling them rules themes uh, feels uh, slash seems like kind of backhanded, but there is a formula to this movie, and it's really obvious seeing that early on. Especially living a living in a post office post Parks and Rec um, society, but the fact that 
like every talking head concludes with a punchline um and like the movie sort of conditioning you to like you know you go into a talking head scene and you know that when you go into it you're going to end with a joke of some sort uh and every every character we meet you know the movie does a great job of introducing you to every character sort of on the outset like every character is going to have um not necessarily a gimmick but just like a driving interior force and especially for the, some of those secondary tertiary characters that's excuse me, all you're going to know about those characters. Um, just like the fact that this one council member is a descendant of one of the founders of Blaine. And that's like, that's her whole shtick and it informs everything she does. Like there's something like that for everybody. Uh, and then the fact that every single character, and we've already kind of gestured at it already, but every single character is, is unflappable. Uh, they're just, they're, they're consistent. They're driving. They're not going to be dissuaded from like their trajectories for this particular movies styling uh i think that works super well um corky is a very like single-minded character and you get a few scenes with corky you know exactly kind of what he's all about he's got the worst uh, again haircut uh but also the worst just like style and fashion sense um he's not particularly skilled and we come to love and appreciate him for that anyway the people in blaine like really love him for that uh, and it's like all the more endearing that he's not like dissuaded from, from the path that he's on. Uh, and like you definitely, I think the first time I watched this a couple years ago, I did not necessarily feel the love as much. And, and maybe I'm just like fooling myself into thinking it's there, but I definitely saw more of it this time around. Um, especially from scenes with like Dr. Um, the Mrs. Dr. Pearl seeing her husband, Eugene Levy in the play and her just like look really excited and her start to clap and then look around. And say, oh, this is like, this is not when I clap. It's <laughs> yeah. like a really sweet one-off moment that I, that I really enjoyed, but there is getting to, to um, what you guys and, and Aaron, what you most recently have touched on. This is, this does play like a, I initially saw it as like a love letter to the Midwest type movie, um, but I think more broadly attributing it to to small towns is maybe the the safer, more general uh, ap- approach. Not that that's a bad thing, but like I think of previous episode true stories where there's a lot of that, like where it's a very um, like finite community. You get a couple scenes showing the town. You have like a, a real sense of the lay of the land. And I, I thought about Wayne's world as well, just because I'm always thinking about Wayne's world. I think the fact that that movie takes place in Aurora, Illinois kind of um, prevents it from being grouped into this same category movie. But the fact that you can feel, um, uh, Wayne and Garth and everybody else kind of bumping shoulders with the the adjacent bigger communities. Um, and you always, you, you get that sense here in Waiting for Guffman, the sort of like small dog um, vibe where it's like we're, we're compare like anything that we can do to catapult ourselves, us, the community of Blaine into the conversation with like, you know, this is, you know, a couple dominoes away. We're like the heartstone of, of America, you know, like we're, we're important. We're just as important as, as the big guys. And that's sort of like, again, small dog chip on the shoulder kind of energy. I, I think also plays into this favorably. So I don't know. There's, there's a lot of ingredients in this too, that I particularly enjoyed eating uh, this time around. It, it, it's stew, whatever. Continue. I think that was that was correct, right? Stew is with milk. There's probably milk. There's uh, wait, stew is a milk. Yeah, I think that's the think... difference between stew and milk, isn't it? It's like a malt shake situation. Milk hmm. to a stew. Anyway, um, 
I'm really glad that we characterized it this way um, because I uh, I've been thinking a lot about why this movie works. I feel like that is kind of the question of this movie. I watched it with Charlie last night and it's strange, right? Because I think on paper, this movie shouldn't work in a lot of ways. I think that like it really skirts the line between being sort of hateful, even though it doesn't seem hateful at all. And there's like a real disconnect there, right? Where like, I, like unequivocally, the people in this movie are the butt of the joke, right? Like Aaron said, I think that's true, but it never feels like that. It never feels like these characters are being made fun of, even in the, in the case of Christopher Guest's character, Corky, who is essentially one big gay joke. Uh, he is still somehow a well-rounded character whom we come to love and you know, like Charlie said, he never feels like homophobic. It never feels hateful. And, you know, your mileage may vary with that, of course. Um, and I think it lives in at the sort of perfect intersection of two elements that we've been talking about, which is both the particularities of small town America and the very particular sense of community theater that you pointed to, uh, Jason. Like, I think it really like this movie works because it's about a community theater production. And I think that like it really gets to this sort of core truth of the idea of community theater and also the community, like the idea of really like any sort of social uh, um, creative project that maybe doesn't, isn't ever going to go anywhere. Um, and I think that that's kind of what allows it to tr like beyond even the sort of um, really well observed character portraits. I think that the, w the reason why this doesn't feel like, it's just making fun of people or the reason why it sort of transcends that idea is that um, it kind of feels like it's in a loving way, sort of poking fun at all of us, right? At all of us for sort of having in some ways, in one way or another, we're all sort of blame people, right? In that we have these sort of illusions about the importance of what we're doing that are sort of like simultaneously, we understand them to be illusions and we can't see them as illusions because of what it would mean about our lives existentially, right? And that sounds really bleak and I don't really mean it to sound bleak because I think that's just sort of a facet of living in sort of like globalist, uh, like 21st century, like world space, right? Is this this idea that like, hey, most of the 7 billion people on the planet don't really matter, right? And like, that's, or that's the wrong way to look at it, right? But I think that's that's the um, that's the paradigm that this movie is trying to shift, right? Is that like undergridding community theater and undergridding living in this small town is this sort of desperate sense that you don't matter, or this desperate sense that you never measured up to what you could have been or should have been, and, and it creates this sort of desperation to express yourself or to be seen to be expressed to uh explore other facets of your personality that maybe you never had the chance to and i think that there's something really sort of transcendentally true there that the joke sort of brings about and gets us thinking about in a way that makes us really empathetic toward it because i think we can see some of ourselves in it right and it, it's silly to say that about a movie that is so funny and so sort of on the face ridiculous but it really got me thinking about like, why do I make this podcast? Right. Or like, why do I do the things that I do? And um, what do I hope to accomplish from that? And it's like, you kind of, you, you catch yourself the way that these characters sort of like are almost not getting the joke, right. Where it's like, this isn't really going anywhere. And in the end, it doesn't matter that it's going, it's not going anywhere because it's not really about that. But for some reason, maybe it's, it's ego or it's just like, 
capitalism or it's just what it feels like to be an individual in a society that's so much bigger than an individual. You kind of need to feel like you're the center of the universe in order for it to be meaningful. And so we get this hilarious intersection of people who are like doing something that doesn't matter and taking it very seriously while also sort of simultaneously subconsciously understanding that it doesn't matter. Do you know what I mean? And so it's a it's a really particular characterization of something that feels again like Jason said like like the actual sort of anxiety that is like underlying every single community theater production you've ever seen, right? And like Charlie, um I don't have any experience with community theater, but Charlie felt that way too watching this movie and she said it's so funny because like everybody at a community theater production has their own relationship to what you're doing and it's different from yours and it weirds you out and you understand it simultaneously and it bothers you right it's like everybody is either taking it not seriously enough or they're taking it too seriously or they're clearly using it just to sort of show off uh, their own talents or they're just attracted to the director or something, or they're, they want to use it as like a stepping stone to get somewhere else or to get something else. And it's like all of these different motivations intersect and um, contradict at the same time, but they're all somehow united under this sort of overarching anxiety about the sort of existential emptiness of the enterprise and how little that existential emptiness actually matters to what it makes them feel right and so i I, like i think that's a big part of why the title waiting for government is like it obvious send up to waiting for godot and it's kind of getting toward the same ideas right this idea that like hey what does it matter that like we are living in a like an absurd time where nothing we do or say actually matters and like why doesn't that seem to matter to us as people at all right like why do we continue to do these things to make these things even um well, we grapple with these anxieties about whether or not they actually matter. What does that do to us? And um, what does it mean about who we are, right? And I think that, like, honestly, this movie gets at some really profound truths about those things, in my opinion, and it does it with really funny, silly jokes. Um, and I I really like it for that reason, I guess. The The film does all that, but it also, like, at the same time kind of like skirts around like the biggest issue I have with like this kind of a thing in a different uh, medium. And that like, there's like so many, we briefly like talked about like the, the office or like parts. Yes. There's like so many TV shows like this. Right. But like it, it's so easily just by nature of being a movie with like a very similar tone skirts around like so many of like my complaints about like those kind of TV shows and specifically their, their format as a kind of long running TV show that just, you know, needs to be what 12 seasons or whatever. Um, and that like, you know, th- this movie is like, I, I would say like kind of considerate towards its characters and like, not like spiteful in a way that like certain things like this, you know, can be, but at the same time, this like movie does lack like any sort of like, extremely cheesy awful emotional sentimental moments every single tv show that has this shit has like three great seasons and then they realize they need like a jim and pam dude i was gonna bring this up exactly every single time it's and i know i'm like the biggest like tv hater alive but like i there is something like so nice about this easily just digestible film being 84 minutes that like is able to have that kind of tone, but not like fall into the the traps that like, I think a TV show just kind of naturally needs to uh, in order to sustain itself for like, 
you know, years and years and years. Um, so yes, I like, it is the weird film that like does have that like kind of caring, slightly positive outlook, Mm -hmm. but does not, uh, feel just like extremely annoying because of it. Yeah. If Um, if I can, if I can push on that, like not push back, I agree. How do you think it avoids that? Like I see a lot of the pieces of mockumentary TV in this. I think we all do. But I hadn't really noticed that it avoids that same kind of trip. Like, by what tools it, is it doing that? What is it doing it, instead? It's the it's the the structure that I think I think Cody talked about. Maybe Jason did, but like the the structure of like you every single shot, like every single shot in this film is like you know somebody talking to the camera, uh, maybe something happening kind of as they continue talking, uh, and then like a punchline at the end of the bit. And there's like almost no deviations from that. Where like the the I think the issue with like a TV show like The Office is like eventually if you need to start introducing more kind of plot elements, more kind of character drama, it's like you you need scenes that like cut away from that, and like it is immediately obvious when you're doing so. And the minute you start like doing that, you, you know there's there's like a lot of scenes that like will be very sentimental and emotional. And then there'll be like kind of a stinger at the end. And it's like, it undercuts everything that came before. Right. And it's like, yeah, hmm. yeah. The solution is like, just not to have that kind of stuff. Right. Like this, this film is like emotional and sentimental in, in a similar way, but it is doing it kind of like on a larger level that is not mired in like the, the kind of character dialogue with the exception of this, the, the, you know, the sequence where Corky is maybe like disillusioned with the play because he doesn't have enough money or whatnot. Um, that's maybe like a small exception, right? But like this film is like 84 minutes and it just sticks to what it is doing um, throughout the whole runtime, I would say. I think that one really good way to characterize this is just the uh, massive difference in the epilogue between this movie and something like a Parks and Rec or The Office, because Aaron's so right, like it it gets egregious, right? Like I think the most egregious examples are probably the last couple seasons of Parks and Rec, but I mean, The Office pulled the same shit where like there would be For all sure. of these jokes, yes. and then literally the last scene in every episode is like an Aesop's fable, like sit down and explain the actual theme that we wanted you to take away from this in the most sentimental language possible and usually it's like it's michael sort of like getting it comically wrong but we're supposed to understand that and it's supposed to be sweet and it's so saccharine um that it it really like saps all of the like satirical energy and um weight out of this um and you you sort of like uh compare this that to this movie which has such a poignant ending just in that the characters a don't get the joke they never have this sort of like um yeah go ahead aaron Oh, I was going to do that after you're done. I was, I was going to say that like, it's the reason why something like, uh, uh, the office is like such a big clip show on like Instagram and TikTok. It's like, oh, there are, there are like really brilliant, funny moments divorced of that shit that you're talking about. Honestly, I I can, yeah, I can sympathize a little bit just that in the sense that I think that watching six seasons of waiting for Guffman would be absolutely like awful, painful. Yeah, because, like, you can't, you have to, like, you build an emotional attachment with these characters, right? Like, I think we did in just the 84 minutes here. I think that's why Parks and Rec in the office and all of these shows get to that place where, like, from the outside, like, there is no value to, like, the last half of those shows because they only exist to sort of, like, um, give the people who already have an emotional investment in the yes. characters 
their sort of payoff, right? It's, it's no like, longer oh, anthropology. It yeah, is. It is yeah. now. It is now. Uh, it is now you wanting to root for you know right. uh, to to Jim to save the company at the the office potluck right. or whatever. And it's you like know. it's yes. a, it's a natural thing that like I think that you kind of have to do that when you have such a sustained emotional investment. But like here, the ending here is so poignant, right? Where like the, the characters don't get anything out of this. They return to their lives. It's sort of sad, right? It's sort of melancholic they're going to continue to be the people they are in the place that they are none of them ever really get the joke or, or say to themselves like what was that like why did we do that you know it's like there's never a moment where somebody looks at the screen and explains the theme of the movie to you and sort of like brings home all of the sort of like emotional sentimentality that you had been feeling um and i think that's really important to getting over in a in a movie like this um even if i i think that it might just literally be impossible in a longer format. Like I, I always think of the first season of parks and rec, which is probably the closest to something like this. And it's absolute garbage because it comes off as like extremely hateful. And all of the characters are people that are like sad and broken as opposed to being sort of like cute the way that these characters are. And um, yeah, it's interesting. I just like, maybe the mockumentary works better in this format or maybe there's something to, um, the idea of never breaking kayfabe, so to speak, to use your parlance, uh, Jason, um, across a smaller sustained thing like this, where for me, it's so much more elegant when you can suggest all of these truths without spelling them out, uh, without sort of like just sort of like leaving it all out there. Um, I think that it stands on its own and it's communicated so much more elegantly and so much more completely with so much more nuance um, this way, I, I guess. No, I agree. And even getting into like the specifics of some of these characters and the way that that is successful, if that doesn't deviate too far from where you wanted to take this, Jason, um, the like, think like if you, if you if you watch the scenes, um, like the talking heads, uh, the talking heads, uh, the, uh, sequences where Ron and Sheila Albertson are, are talking together. And like, if you, if you cannot glean, like an encyclopedia's worth of insight into what the relationship is actually like looking at you're just witnessing the ways in which Ron like microaggresses his wife and does it just like I don't know you're not paying attention there's so much there and there's something deeply like, tragic to that relationship um and I think the 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 fact that this like it, it this movie doesn't waiting for Guffman doesn't spell it out explicitly necessarily like everything is gleaned in the margins um the fact that ron and sheila are this sort of like cocky like co like this co they're like cocky varsity athletes for like local community theater playing you know well into you know their their 40s 50s and and beyond just like they're they're the ringers um of this scene and yet their relationship is so like d deeply unhealthy ron is um yeah like between the lines a uh, uh, <laughs> huge asshole sheila as you know <laughs> she she will get like visibly uh, egregiously drunk during like just like dinner outings with with friends that they have just met talk about like deeply personal developments in the relationship like penis reduction surgery just like these these seeds that are that are planted in um these talking head sequences and then brought up later again just like really really smart but like you get a lot there you you glean that you know i mean 
Libby Mae Brown, uh, the Parker Posey character, the sort of bit of her just like only having an existence in community theater or Dairy Queen is like, again, on paper, deeply sad, but it's not played that way. Um, Guffman as a movie, like very much stays in its lane. And just like, we're gonna, we're gonna focus on this one, this one sphere that all of these characters live in. And then in the margins and at the end, you know, we'll, we'll gesture at what maybe took place. The fact that, um, Levy's character, Dr. Pearl, um, up and goes to Miami. I found myself asking, hopefully that means he didn't leave his wife, but also we didn't see his wife. He never mentioned his wife. Um, there are certain things that this movie leaves to your imagination. And I think like we're, we're stronger for it with the fact that we don't have, 12 seasons of waiting for Guffman the show to spell out every possible outcome that we could have wanted and then spelling out like nine more seasons worth of stories and possibilities that we didn't really need to know. We maybe like tricked ourselves into thinking we wanted to know what happened to Dr. Pearl, but I don't need to know what happened to Dr. Pearl outside of this like particular community theater event. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, you know, like I, I don't want to know too much about the story of him like separating from his wife or anything like that. Um, I only want to be privy to the Ron and Sheila Albertson relationship to a certain extent before I get like really, really sad uh, and upset. But like, I, I feel like this, I feel like this movie toes that balance really well where it's, we're given just enough, we're left wanting more and that's probably like the right, I, I don't know how like hot of a take that is. Like the fact that we're left maybe wanting, wanting a little more of these characters, the fact that this movie moves so well and we wrap everything up in about 84 minutes is like, is kind of a blessing. We can return to this same movie without getting bloated off the fact that, oh, there are like many more seasons of this sort of show or if they return with like a sequel or a revival later. Christopher Guest, we know you're listening. Please don't bring this movie back. That's like, that's don't ruin this this legacy. Just like leave this. This is a pristine 84 minutes. Just leave it as it is, please. Um, would you agree, Jason? Christopher Guest, if you're minutes? listening, can I have a million dollars? Thank you. Uh, can I have a million and one dollars so I can rub it in Aaron's face, Christopher Guest? No take backs, Aaron. Sorry. Oh, uh, I heard the no take backs thing. I don't know if Christopher Guest has millions to be given out. I don't know if his recent efforts directorially. He's been married have... to Jamie Lee Curtis since 1984, but. Never mind. He's got, he's got bank. Um, no, I, I, I'm really glad that you actually took it there, Cody, because like it, I think that's what I was trying to say in the top when I was talking about how in the first act, roughly, we like set up what Blaine is, how it's like all to be mocked and forgotten. It's built on a misunderstanding of where people were the stool boom and everything. I just love that setup. And then we see like the actual existence of these, like the lives of these people through only their interactions with this local community theater. We don't get a whole, like we get after David cross and the UFO thing. Uh, we don't get a whole lot about like the background of Blaine or like what, where it sits on the national stage. We just play in that same space. We've sort of built through the characters here through the eyes and, and like th through the actions of the characters we're watching big and uh, exaggerated though. These characters are, they're still like responding to like thing like the existence that they're, that they're fit like the, the the small town conditions of their of their existence um it like i i read uh roger ebert's i don't know if it was a contemporary review or a retrospective review but uh his review mentioned like how it's full of laughs and it's a comedy but like it makes i think the term was small nudges at human nature um and it's like i think it's i think that's what maybe we're all scratching at is that like it makes these smaller intimate points or like this uh th these cute little intimations at at like the the i, I guess the like 
the driving, what inspires and drives these people through like the ridiculous interactions they have through the fact that like, yeah, you can rely on the cadence of every talking head having a joke um, of like everything that's supposed to happen right, not quite happening right. And yet there's pride in that. It's like, it made me think like, obviously the title, a reference to Waiting for Godot, it's like the dumbest ass version of Waiting for Godot where everybody realizes like, it just communally realizes that this is sort of pointless, that suffering is the, is the point that it, that it doesn't get better. And they just all sort of like ignore that and enjoy the thing anyway. Like I really love how like bluntly stupid that is. And yet like the nuanced, very uh, like Cody was elucidating. I think that Ron and Sheila are a great example of that. How we see like the little tiny nuances of the relationship hinted at um, Alan Pearl and his wife, uh, same thing. Uh, Corky and like the whole group. The, I think the example that Ebert's review brought up was um, Bob Balaban's musical director character, like sort of having this uh, ire about Corky becoming like the, the leader of the group again. And then just, that's never really played out. We just like, we recognize him as the guy who's like at odds. And then he's really successfully directing the musical uh, score. And he's like down in the pit and he's really killing it. And it's like, we don't really need to see them like having a feud. That's not a plot line that is fruitful or rich here. We will just intimate that like things are not like well in the state of Denmark there and move on. Like everybody's going to ignore the fact that it's pointless and a little bit dumb and we're going to enjoy it anyway. I really love how every element of this movie sings with that. Even like the very closing bit, this was going to be my junk drawer thing, but like the waiting or excuse me, uh, my dinner with Andre action figures and remains of the day lunchbox and shit like junk drawer elements for sure. But dude, when, when he said, I've been trying really hard to get the DOS boot action figures, I think I almost <laughs> wet my pants. <laughs> It's the funniest shit. Uh, I'll hand off to Harry now because it seems like that's probably got. Yeah, a ramp I mean, on for I you. think that um, in both ways that we've been describing, and I really like that point, Jason. Um, the movie just kind of like has the strength of its convictions, right? In that, like, I think another thing that differentiates it from something like The Office and Parks and Rec is that in those shows, again, maybe necessarily to Aaron's point, like. The thing about them is they start out being the same thing about these people who care deeply about something that's sort of absurd or something that doesn't matter. But by the end of the show, they have flinched, right? And they have made the thing that doesn't matter into something that matters deeply, mm-hmm. into something that you actually care about and that is actually right to care about, right? Like Leslie Nope starts as like this sort of Nepo baby um, director of Parks and Rec. And by the end of Parks and Rec, it's implied she's the president of the United States, right? It's It's just sort of like... You need you need to like start to care about it. Otherwise, like the fact that you're caring about something that doesn't matter, it does what this movie does, which is it gets you to sort of reflect on again that that human nature, right? Um, the other thing that I think really works is that this is like maybe the best use of documentary style, just because it's all about like the strange, almost solipsistic self-centeredness of human nature, where like all of these characters think they're the main character, right? Every time they're the talking heads, they're like, well, this is my moment to shine. This movie is kind of about moments to shine, right? And it, it is sort of like, again, it's not hateful about that, right? It's not hateful about the idea that everyone's self-centered because it is something that is so fundamental to human nature, right? It's like, all of these people, like, this is the lives that they have. Like, they are at the center of all of their experiences. And so, of course, like, just like you and me, right? Like, maybe on um, some days when we feel particularly philo- philosophical, we can think about how maybe our lives don't matter that much. Maybe we're just small cogs in a much larger machine. But for the most part, like, we're just thinking about ourselves, right? We're thinking, like, oh, I'm like, I love my my friends, my family, or like I'm working on something that's very important to me and I care about it deeply, right? 
and you know, like because I'm the main character of my life, right? And all of these, like, I think this movie really captures both the absurdity of believing those things and the fundamental sort of human inescapability of believing that, right? Where it's like, oh, like, like these characters are, it's silly from our perspective that these characters would care so much about this and about themselves and their life story because what a silly story it is, right? You're just in a small town, you're doing community theater, who cares? But like, you also recognize that like, well, but yeah, like I'm the same way, right? Like, Mm -hmm. or... Or like you have to feel that way. There's there is no other, which is the whole sort of like absurdist point, right? Is that like there is no such thing as nihilism in humanity because yeah. no matter what, like you are going to feel like your life matters, no matter how deeply you recognize that it doesn't matter. Exactly. And there's <laughs> never there's never that moment, like you and Aaron both said, there's never that moment where like everybody gathers around and says like I know this is silly, I know this is stupid, but we got to pull it together, everybody. Everybody just kind of does oh, it as God. a natural element of their character. Right. I didn't. I that would ruin that. the whole like, movie, right? Yeah, it, it would make it, as you said, too sentimental. It would probably bloat it a bit, and it would make it feel like, oh, you've undercut the conclusion right. that I've just come to here about the movie. In and text. instead, we get that poignant ending where everybody's moving on to the next thing, right? Like, they already have their next chapter set up, and they're already talking about how it's going to be big, right? Uh, and I love that, you know, like Parker Posey talking about how she's going to make a healthy ice cream for Dairy Queen, right? It's just sort of like, that's what people do. Halo right? Top is, would is come like, along. I yeah. mean, you know, that's a, not maybe, a bad point. Maybe she's the only really successful one years down. And the like, line. I think, think that's <laughs> that's the thing. Not to get too sentimental in a movie that's not actually sentimental at all, but like, I really love that because that feels so true. Right? Is that like the the most marginalized people you've ever met? Right? Like the people who live in tiny towns like this, or the people who have no money and no resources and no um, ability to do anything, no education. They all have dreams, right? Like they're all working on something. They all want their lives to mean something. They're all pursuing that as hard as they can in their own ways. And like, I think, I think that like using the documentary style to explore the way everybody feels like they are constantly the main characters in their own sort of drama that's playing out um, is a, is a really brilliant way to depict that, right? Just this sort of way that like, there are so many facets to the fact that like you can tell they're acting for the camera. They're not necessarily saying what they believe, but like it's also a version of what they believe because they're not like used to acting. They're not like trying to be something else necessarily. They're putting their best foot forward. And it's like, it's such a um, way to sort of like metaphorically reconstruct the way that we approach our own perceptions of ourselves, right? This sort of idea that like we're sort of presenting this persona, this angle. We're, um, we're like, we're like sort of, um, making the most of our situation, trying to sort of portray it in the most positive light. Um, and we're sort of doing that at the same time to like get away from this implication that it's something else. And that sort of implication is definitely directing a lot of that feeling um, in a way that I think like, like, like we said, it's, it's really interesting, right? Because it's like, this is such a funny movie and just such a joy to watch. But also like there, there is actually a lot to talk about in terms of sort of like what Ebert called those little gestures toward human nature um, that play out here. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite examples of that is Cliff. I think the character's name is Clifford, the guy who ends up being like the narrator of the play. Um, I forget the actor's name, but like he is totally like his only existence in the movie beyond being introduced is to like perform the part of narrator. He's 
fucking incredible at that. He's like the only one that's like inarguably very good at what he's doing. He looks goofy because of the overdone stage makeup. Well, it's him and the music, right? Yeah. It's him and like the the music that everybody hates compared to the Uh, Christopher Guest's character. I just like how he is introduced as like a simple guy. He seems to do manual labor, probably farming or something. He's got the goofy like gun stand made of pointing deer hooves and stuff. But like he had intimate, he had uh, hopes of being an actor at some point in his life, and Corky gives him the chance to do it, and he really knocks it out of the park. Everybody else who's like, uh, you know, Ron and Sheila are uh, obviously the ones who have like, who are known for doing this exact thing. They're like insufferably like hammy on stage. This guy, I think, he, as a vector of that idea of like, we all have those. Uh, like everybody has an interior and an interiority and like a, a drive and some sort of desire and some sort of thing that, that they want out of their life. Clifford is like the one who just accepts it and does it and performs incredibly. Like he's very good at what he does and it's never kind also, of that's yeah, such same. a Oh, sorry. Oh, that's just such ahead. a funny joke though. Like also the frames, like first of all, that he's so decked out in makeup. Yeah. Uh, he looks so <laughs> he ridiculous, looks like but it, it looks really good. <laughs> um, but also just like, I love the writing of that frame story where it's like, okay, so the idea is he's like an old West frontiersman sort of like at a campfire in the old West explaining the story of Blaine, but he like explains the present and future of Blaine as well. So I'm like, what is this guy's relationship to the no, story? Those characters are always supernatural in nature. They always exist. Outside oh, I see. Of time yeah, he's like a yes. sort of a, a folkster, folk trickster God, like in, yes. uh, where the water tastes like wine or something yes <laughs> like, like water for yes um yes he his his character is is quite i think the scenes of of him uh uh you know kind of sitting by the campfire are some of the the funniest moments i mean i i use the quote the don't get me going on beans uh, at the top of the show, <laughs> he, but says, he has like three or four so lines good. in a row just about how much he wants to talk about beans, and then he's like, "Anyway, here's the story." <laughs> it's yes, very good. I, I do. There is like an interesting thing with like the the various actors uh, in the play, and that like how good they are is like inversely related to like how much how serious they are, and like how much they're going for it. You know what I mean? Like Cork, Corky is just like absurdly bad in the in the play. You know what I mean? Um, yes, I, uh, and then uh, shout out to the, shout out to the, uh, the Bob Balaban character, um, who is just like quietly simmering in the background of all of the shots. I, 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 I do agree. There good. is like something interesting with that plot line, never like being resolved, but I think it's, it's kind of funnier that just like he, it, the shot is always framed. So he is like just exactly in the background <laughs> yeah. and constantly visible and just like staring. You know he's what I like, mean? He's like this movie's <laughs> version of a straight man, right? It, it's absolutely it's so funny. Yes. He's like, he's so like, clearly talented. Guy, he's just like, like a, like a, like relatively serious, relatively talented music director. And he's just like, what yes. is going on? <laughs> it's so funny. Pretty good. Yeah. Uh, well, that's where I was going to transition to drunk door thoughts. Did anybody else have a quick pointy? Man, I feel like I could just like recite all my bits. I mean, first of all, like this goes without saying, but Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara are, are fucking legends. Uh, yeah. Fred Willard, I just looking at his face makes me laugh. And I like, this is one of my favorite performances of his because like, he just like does things with his, um, uh, like facial expressions and the conviction with which he speaks. That is so funny. Um, yeah. but like it's, it's pointless to talk about like, cause like, I think every single character in this movie turns in a world-class character acting performance. Like the fact that Parker Posey is literally always chewing gum, 
like even when she's like drinking a shake at the end and she stops between sips of her shake um in order to uh chew her gum is so funny um like her eyeliner is so funny um i just like there are so many great little like character observations like this is sort of an understated joke but like the the time when um corky tells eugene levy's character that he has to take off his glasses because that would be historically inaccurate for the year 1835 it's like it's absurd but also like i bet that's happened like that sounds so much like something that would actually happen in a community theater project and i i just love that like hilarious jokes like that are also like they they coincide with like what is clearly like straight up improv right like there are entire scenes of this movie that feel improv and how they manage to like walk that balance um is is so good to me me too uh, i've got i mean ton of ton of favorite gags from this movie a few of them are visually inclined and maybe saved for a, a segment that may or may not come immediately after this one but the uh i think we the, may be kind of kind of in it already i'm just gonna play the sound just play effect. the sound just play yeah. the sound effect yeah drop door thanks there. everybody it's, it's already yeah, a few minutes ago yeah and then the yeah so potentially the segment after after this one but now that we're in the drawer um i mean there are a lot of great gags that have like the immediate sort of reward of you're saying a line or seeing a thing happening right now um there are a few that stuck with me that like play literally just like a single cut in some cases like going back to dr pearl's crossed eyes um i think it's a character in the play that refers to um the what like the i think eugene levy's character might be playing like the titular play or like whatever like the davy crockett type explorer type who founds the city and somebody refers to his uh, keen and perceptive eyes, and then it just cuts to him with his crossed eyes without glasses. <laughs> it's so good how that pays off, man. It's, I mean, that's it's at so first good. I was like, I because the the thing with like the the play sequence is like other similar media has conditioned me to just expect it to be like the worst play of all time, right? But like right. the thing about this movie is it's like it's like people who are kind of bad at what they do in like the larger scale of it as like an art form putting on like a perfectly acceptable community play right yeah yeah and, yeah and so like it's there's so many moments like that that like actually go for the funnier route instead of like you know i anticipate like there's the moment where he like stumbles off the horse but like i was expecting him to trip over something pull down a band somebody dies in the audience there's like you know what i mean Right. Um, but they all like sort of kill it right like or just yes. enough where like like <laughs> after that first scene especially like when they're all going down and they're all like congratulating each other and being like that was good you're like wait a minute that, that was pretty good, good. <laughs> yeah. that was yeah. pretty good and, and, like that is so much funnier than like yes. the alternative yes but the <laughs> eyes gag yeah. is such a good fucking payoff it's so good the eyes gag is good and like yeah i mean going back to the fact that everybody is balls to the wall and they put on like a pretty good community production you know for this scale like it's it's really good but just like the the backstage um components uh um fred willard ron albertson getting his hair fluffed by Sheila and it like it's him at like give near, me a little curl you know where I like yeah, the little curl <laughs> right him at near peak asshole and it's just like oh okay no not now you can tend to yourself the next scene that they cut to he's wearing a hat anyway that was <laughs> that was the one gag where I sat with and I was like wait a minute oh fuck like that's that's again like the the <laughs> couple of like time detonated gags that's like one of only a few in this movie but that's one that um really paid off again like it and like the humor almost like it, it's like in a in a 
horror movie when something is like really scary and then there's like a joke that happens or something that's to kind of relieve the tension there is something relieving about like laughing at how much of an asshole ron is um like kind of sadistic but uh yeah i don't know that was so that's i don't know those are gags fellas gags Catherine O'Hara's hair in this is so fucking so funny. funny. She looks like an anime. Like she has like Sephiroth hair. It looks you know like what I mean? Vagrant Story. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's it's so every time I think I maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like it gets worse over the course of the film. Like it slowly gets bigger and more. Oh, it's very good every time. Um, I'm glad that Cody focused so much on Ron because there's one of my favorite. It's not so much a bit as just a passing moment. I'm assuming it was improvisational where they've just tried out Ron and Sheila and they're about to leave. And Corky says, you want to just you want to just move the stool off? And he's like, oh, you want me to strike it? <laughs> I, I understand the terms because we work with Corky. Before. Well, we've, done some, like, we've done some work before, so we understand <laughs> all the terms. Moment. I, I love that. God. Um the uh whenever the scene like starts on somebody else's face and they're talking it's like a talking head moment but just with maybe with more than one person and then it like cuts to corky and he's wearing the most ridiculous fucking thing you've ever seen like a collarless paisley shirt with a paisley uh vest and like very bright pants or something just absurd it's like john waters stepped on set and the haircut is just so fucking good throughout um the improvisational skills i think lead to a lot of the best bits in this movie there's I'm assuming improvisational. I don't know how you could write this, but Catherine O'Hara is talking about her acting style and she's talking about like the uh, closing your eyes when you're talking to someone bit and she does it. They, do it. they let her do it for like 35 full seconds where she like opens her eyes when she's looking away. She, and she, looks she, at you. she doing closes it. her eyes so with her eyebrows funny. up. It looks so fucking yes. hilarious. It's Ron, just very yes. good. Ron uh, and Sheila have such a good... And most of this was improv, I believe. Mm-hmm. And and O'Hara and uh, and and Willard are like so in tune with each other in very small ways that is just so excellent. It's so you, good. They're you can both, almost yes. not tell. Like there are scenes where they're performing together, and I couldn't tell how much of it was they were making it up on the fly and how much of it was scripted for them. To, like she jumps on his back and does the whole like coffee after midnight thing. I, it's just it, you're right that they just work so perfectly in sync. The other bit that gets me, it's not Ron and Sheila, but uh, when Alan Pearl like. He's clearly just a guy who follows into the footsteps of others in terms of what he thinks is funny. So he's just the guy of the group who recites other people's bits and then explains the bits. It's one of the elements of the movie that doesn't age super well because like the reference upon which it's based is pretty like heavily racist. But his thing with Johnny Carson, where he does the whole like Native American uh, bit of like, you know, wampum and teepee unfortunately very funny that they bring it back a couple of times in like isolation kind of almost after you've forgotten he did it to like during the it's uh, like the most office joke the restaurant yeah it it, it is the most it is the most michael scott but it still works better right very very funny yeah um i uh in terms of brick jokes i this one isn't even necessarily character based but i always laugh so hard when like they have like this two minute lead up where they're explaining the history of the like the footstools in blaine Uh, And they're talking like it's this story that has all of these particularities about like, oh, there was this little kid and like the the president came and um, he presented him with a footstool. And then like that, what that led to. And it all leads up to them unveiling this big sign that says Blaine um, stool capital of the world. (laughs) (laughs) I always get such a kick out of that. Um, And then also like the song, the stool boom song, which is so funny. Um, All the songs in this are really, really hilarious. But I especially love the talking head with the audience member afterwards where he was like yeah i uh i can't get i can't get some of those songs out of my head 
um it's like they're just in my head it's um it's kind of annoying actually <laughs> it's like <laughs> oh shit yeah like yes um but yeah like it's, all the lyrics and the songs are so funny i always laugh when um there's that one line about take your girl out behind the bar <laughs> in the, that first song uh is so funny um or like the there'll the be tr- time for kissing yeah the treat that monarchs ask for and it's they're talking about a stool and the stool boom it's just yeah really really hilarious uh the last thing that i wanted to call out it's not from the movie proper um, but I did watch this on Blu-ray and I did not get around to checking out all the deleted scenes, but I knew I had to go back and revisit the, the, um, Parker Posey, the Libby Mae Brown, like the deleted scene version of her audition, which she evidently like wrote herself the, the night before filming or whatever. Wow. Um, it's, if it were in the movie, it would be like probably maybe the funniest scene. I don't like it. It's extremely funny um i can get why they didn't put it in the movie probably just because the tone is is a little bit different but it's very hilarious if you have not seen it it is on youtube uh like it's gonna anytime i revisit this movie like checking out that scene as well is gonna be um required and then some like that's i i've already like gone back to it (laughs) like a few other times since finding out it existed um it's extremely hilarious uh, really good I'm going to watch that immediately, Cody, because I didn't know about that. Um, my last junk drawer thought is is just a piece of sort of ephemera. And this might be um, apocryphal, but I had heard that um, Wallace Shawn really wanted to be in this movie and kept asking Christopher Guest, but Christopher Guest couldn't write him a part that worked quite well for like, they couldn't come up with a concept that wasn't just sort of like, Wallace Shawn was like almost a little too visible, right? Like you would be like, oh, that's Wallace Shawn, even more than somebody like Fred Willard. Um, And that's why they did the My Dinner with Andre action figures bit at the end is just to sort of like shout out Wallace Shawn. <laughs> that's Sean. very good. And I, apparently Wallace Shawn um, loves that bit so much that he still has those action figures on display in his home. I mean, it's a great bit. Yeah, it's it's, it's one the, of the funniest, funniest movie. Yeah. It's, it's it's like it's, but it's also like maybe this is a general point about the film as well. Like that is such like a overdone hack bit too. Like outside of this, fi- like right. the action figure of a movie that doesn't need an action figure, but like they somehow just still nail it. It's, by it's because just, it's my being so high is maybe the funniest. It's the funniest movie, movie to, to do, do that, that for. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But there's like so many movies that 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 make that joke, but in a slightly shittier fashion. Um, but yeah, like space balls or whatever, but like, <laughs> yeah. like, this is, yes, this is, it's, it's quite good just because it is, it is just done better. Yes. Remains of the day lunchbox is a phrase that <laughs> will mean, stick with Oh, me that's forever. so good. Right? The kids that will enjoy it, be happier <laughs> they, eating their meals. Yeah, they don't, they the don't like lunchbox. having, uh, having lunch at school, but when they have a remains of the day lunchbox, <laughs> they're just a little bit happier. <laughs> uh, it's a very small junk drawer thought, but for some reason, I remembered that Blaine was named after the last name of whatever settler or discoverer it was. But for some reason, it's very funny to me that they chose the first name of the guy to name it after. I guess it is actually a real town in Missouri named it with the last name of some person who helped settle it. But I just found that very funny that like, it's just another like ridiculous why thing about the the space that they exist in that like, it's, it's just the guy's first name, Blaine Fabin. I don't know. For some reason, it, it stuck with me as a funny, goofy, goofy little bit. Um... Uh, that I think will take us to our penultimate, and I remembered it this time. Penultimate segment called uh, "Good Grief, Give Me a GIF." Uh, we put out a GIF with every episode on Twitter, 
And I want to know what you think that GIF should be from this movie. Um, Cody, do you have any uh, quick timestampies and suggesties? Yeah, I do. Did we sorry, did we ever did we close the drawer? I would hate for the oh, segments so to sorry. get like. Thank yes, you. Thank I appreciate you. this. Lead into each other. This, uh, Jason, uh, don't ever rap. make that mistake again. It's formally closed. You were really. <laughs> That's the, such a long like. <laughs> <laughs> got a lot of shit rolling around in there. Know, we like got a, a lot of good thoughts. Long drawer, you know. Anyway, yeah. don't don't have a sound effect for it yet, but uh, give me a gif. Yeah, again, uh, a shout out to Minnesota's own Charlie Brown, who is famous for saying good grief, among having uh, a blockhead type um, stature. Is this, uh, a, right this is your second hint at giving me the... To I don't know. I li- I'm an idea guy. <laughs> I get that's um, So my I- speaking of ideas, ideas for the gif for this episode, um, the, the very quick throwaway scene um and just because i see a lot of attention in the comments charles charles Scholes is from minnesota i don't know if charlie brown canonically is from minnesota um just to to resolve that thread um close the the drunk drawer of my brain but um reopening it again for the 41 minute approximately timestamp where eugene levy is bowling he has a very funny lead up to him rolling the ball and then he rolls it Right into the gutter. Uh, gives me the biggest laugh anytime I watch this movie. Um, it's great. Uh, it's very quick. Uh, the only other, um, or the other one I wanted to put, uh, one hour, four minutes, 42 seconds, somewhere about there. It's uh, approaching the uh, the curtain closed for like a, a musical number between Parker Posey and, and Christopher Guest. They're on scene together. And like she does this like perfect kind of curl up following the romantic musical number. And then um, Corky attempts to do it and he's less limber. So it's just like more creaky and slow and awkward looking. And then the curtain closes. Um, there's just like, I don't know that. That was one of mine as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, very good. Uh, I don't know. May- maybe it would look good in a GIF, but uh, I'm not, I'm going to stop editorializing. Those are my, those are my pickies. Well, if you had thoughts as well, Harry, uh, you take uh, Sure. Um, I really like it when Eugene Levy dressed as the alien can't get out of the uh, spaceship. Like he hits the big uh, alien head on the spaceship as he's trying to walk out. I thought that was that would be a really good gif. Um, uh, definitely the Catherine O'Hara, um, like eyes closed when I'm looking at somebody, eyes open when I'm away. Just the fact that she does it for like 30 full seconds would make it a really good gif. Um and then this is a weird one, but uh, it, early in the pit sequence, there's this moment where like somebody stops playing like their horn or something so they can like hit this like timpani sort of like steel drum thing. Um, and the, the camera just like cuts to them hitting this thing in a really, really hilarious way. And I don't know why, but I found it really funny. Just the fact that like the entire like band stops so that they can hear this like little ting, 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 ting. And like the <laughs> camera just decides to like really luxuriously linger on that. Like this is this guy's moment. Um, I thought that was hilarious. Did you have any of those moments on the trombone, Aaron? Any of those moments you wish somebody had a camera on you? Um... I don't, I'm trying Too to think many of like to the remember, biggest huh? trombone story. I don't think I ever, yeah, no, probably not. Tr- honestly, the, tr- the trombone is like one of the more embarrassing instruments to play, depending on like the context, because so much of it is like based on, especially I was a marching band, so much of it is based on like the exact angle you're holding the trombone at. And it's like, because it's such a long instrument, if you are holding it wrong, it just looks like shit just looks we're like a trumpet it's like okay it's like this long when a trombone it's like if your angle is off it's like you're you're so noticeable compared to everyone else playing 
Um, so no, the less cameras on me playing trombone, the better. I would say. Okay. Over. Uh, yeah. How about? Did you ever extend the thing uh, and use it to pull somebody off stage, like a shepherd's crook? Uh, as an assassin, yes. Okay, cool. Yes, <laughs> yes, and then I killed them. Yes. Your uh, second life. Your first was trombonist. Second was assassin. Third is podcaster. Well, they uh, never expect a humble trombone player to just be the one doing. You the stick evil out leads. too much to be uh, suspicious. You know, um, that's right. Speaking of sticking out, what sticks out as far as the gif from this movie to you? Uh, the gif is the one to use where they're um, they're all they're, during the play. I don't have a timestamp, but during the play, they're all staring off into the audience uh, as they're awaiting Blaine to come and give news about the, the the land off to the west or whatever and being in California. And they're staring off into the audience. And then, um, you know, Blaine enters from st- stage left i guess uh but because they're looking out they have to all turn their heads slowly to look at him uh enter from behind all of them that is that is uh that is my suggestion of the gif that's very funny that is it a is. very funny moment it that is. got me it's good un- underspoken moments uh there are a couple more obvious like these were shots that they tried to compose maybe uh moments that that i appreciated um Catherine o'hara and fred willard had this like husband wife handshake thing that they do i think it's just before their audition it's about 15 minutes in and it's just like a short you know they bump fists and they do like a little thing i think that's i think that'd be a really good gif um anytime that corky is dancing and doing that like ridiculous like thrusting thing that he (laughs) and he gets everybody else to do it later on as part of their exercises so fucking funny um there's also uh, you might be able to perfectly you i say knowing that i'll be the one to do it might be able to perfectly loop uh Parker Posey wafting one single raw chicken wing on on the, Very on the barbecue, just like with a little bit of pepper on it. Uh, she just looks so despondent. I believe that's I want to say that's right after Corky has left the production and nobody's sure what they're going to do with themselves. Very fucking. And she just she doesn't even need to sell it. She just looks so fucking. Bo- I think she's got like a cigarette or something in her hand and she's just wafting it with a paper plate. God, what a moment. Um, those are my gifts. Uh, good grief, man. Thank you so much, y'all, for yours. Uh, we have a final segment, an actual final segment, ultimate segment. We need to introduce uh, Harry and myself. Yes, the final segment is the segment we like to call <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. Wow. Thank you for that extremely talented introduction. We'll have a talent scout sent down here. I'm sure they'll be here by next episode. We'll, we'll wait for that. Uh, at the end of Waiting for Guffman, we find Corky has opened up his own movie merchandise shop. Uh, we talked about that a little bit during our discussion of the film Waiting for Guffman. Maybe you've heard of it. I'd like for us to explore this merchandise shop uh, idea uh, in, in a little more detail in a segment I like to call waiting for prop man uh what i'm gonna do is describe an item of movie memorabilia um they're they're more this is more geared toward props uh organically finding quirky dumb movie merchandise was a little more difficult so this is going to be angled more towards props from 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 movie sets uh so after reading each item just kind of describing it uh in enough uh as much detail as i'm able i will ask y'all in the order of harry aaron jason to give an estimate for how much that particular item is valued at or more specifically how much the seller is asking for each prop so that is the characterization of this you'll get a point for every correct answer or more likely closest to the correct answer whoever's closest to the guess of the not the christopher guess the guess of what <laughs> 
what is uh, being asked for price-wise, you'll get the point. The person with the most points at the end will win. As always, Trivia Mafia rules apply here, so use your noodles, not your Googles. Don't go on eBay and try to find these things in the moment, because I will know, um, probably. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and jump in. So, first item from the item description. <clears throat> A Wonka bar from 1971's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Genuine on-screen film prop. Wonka bars were used, for those who don't remember, Wonka bars were used during early scenes as people around the world frantically hunted for the five elusive golden tickets. This is an unwrapped triple dazzle caramel Wonka bar. The bar is made of brown plastic and features a Wonka stamp on the individual chocolate pieces. The bar is wrapped in silver foil with a colorful wrapper featuring a printed seal reading, win a trip to Wonka's chocolate factory. And the back of the wrapper shows printed nutritional facts and ingredients. End quote. How much... Do you think the asking price for this prop is Harry? Uh, $2,000. Harry says $2,000. Locking it in over to Aaron, the ruthless movie prop merchant. Aaron, what do you, yes. do, what do you think for this? Um, I, I really have no concept of how expensive this stuff. That's the idea. I'm going to go $10,000, <laughs> I think. Maybe that's like way... Yeah, I, don't, I could see it being like 200 or like 50K. I have no... I'm going 10,000. Well, thanks for not doing $2,001. I no, appreciate it. Because then Jason would step in 2000 you know, in, in $2, and then I'm done for it. $1,999. Is, is that actually what you're going with? Oh, no, 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 the, no, no. Not actually. Okay. What are uh, you going with? I was going to go even higher than Aaron. I feel like this is a, like yeah. a, a movie with like a lot of preeminence and a lot of cultural impact. I, I'm going to say... Like fourteen hundred, excuse me, fourteen thousand. I I think that it might be able if it's like got the gold ticket and everything. Shit, there was no mention of the gold ticket. Was no there? golden ticket in this. Uh, name you guys. You're done for. Yeah, oh, I, get I out of here. Nope. Yeah, yep. I, I put it down fourteen. Fourteen k. Okay. All right. Uh, so the asking price for this this uh, Wonka bar, this what was it? Triple triple dazzle caramel Wonka bar. The listed asking price is. GBP 175.00 converted to American dollars. That is approximately 224 Jesus. US dollars. <laughs> okay. Uh, Why don't I just buy some of this shit, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I thought that as well. On that. I was like, yeah, by the way, way too. I would gladly pay a lot more for that. I would pay my life. Well, especially well, great. you. You love, you love that film so much. Yeah. Your favorite film. I love useless movie prop shit. I've got a, like a, a, a promo Wayne's World Cup that A24, A24 wrangled. Um, I'm, I'm going to censor the money amount that they actually wrangled from me, but that's just sitting in a cupboard somewhere. I don't even have it in a plastic case <laughs> have, or anything. I have the I green light tabletop role-playing game sitting in my <laughs> well, closet. Right. I've always, I've always wanted Ash's head from... Uh, uh, alien, sure. you know, when it's like yeah. the oh, fucking wow. cum is like oh, puzzling out of it. <laughs> yeah, it would be very, very expensive, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure one of the components playing into this and our guardrails will be further adjusted and refined as we go here. But this is, you know, one of many Wonka bars. Was that, the, a, the buy, was that a buy it now situation or was that a, a bid? These are all, yeah, these are all um, like if there is like if there is a buy it now option, that's mm -hmm. like, uh, yeah, I, I didn't go like current bid. Um, okay, I'm wondering if I like could these wanna... up right before right oh, before probably. you reveal the answer and then i <laughs> you could i mean i'm i'm looking at a static word document but hey the world is your oyster i would um, just have to spend several thousand dollars for to get one question right in this quiz game 
I, I think the, the price of winning a Nodi segment seems to be, um, and just, oh, I'm looking at the space. Oh, it says priceless. So that's, um, that's yeah. what that's what that's right, all yeah. about. Charlie Brown. Uh, second, so Harry got the point. He was closest by about $1,800, um, one full decimal point, um, to, you know, an opposite direction. So we've got, we've got four more here. So still very much anybody's game, anybody's marketplace. Uh, the second item from the description. For sale is an original screen-used custom sign prop from 2007's Spider-Man 3 starring Tobey Maguire. Maybe you've heard of him. Comes with uh, an official studio certificate of authenticity from Columbia Pictures, so you know it's legit. The sign is blue and reads in white text, We clap for Spidey. And they're like some hand-drawn like hands. You can see the sign. This is still the item description. You can see this sign is easily screen matched to the Spider-Man ceremony slash festival scene. As you can see someone in the background holding the sign up behind Topher Grace as Eddie Brock as he takes photos of Gwen Stacy, played by Bryce Dallas Howard. This custom foam board, there's a certificate of authenticity again. So, you know, it's, you know, it's the real deal. This custom foam board sign measures 30 inches by 20 inches. Still part of the item description. It's cool because the sign mentions Spidey on it. So it's somewhat <laughs> self-explanatory that it's from Spider-Man. Now, end quote. Uh, so all that being said, how much is being asked for this sign, Harry? I'm going to go with $125. Harry says $125. Aaron, how are you feeling about this Spidey sign? I I I don't know whether that that movie would you know the props would like I feel like that's such a nothing prop you know what I mean but Harry what do you guess hundred twenty five it's extra cool because it mentions Spidey so you know it's from Spider Man um yeah I'm gonna go uh, four hundred fifty dollars I'll I'll say maybe this is overpriced a bit all right Aaron four hundred fifty locking it in and then Jason's Spidey senses are tingling. What are they leading you toward? Uh, I'm going to say $1,250. The last question, if not for the last question, being ending up like 200 bucks, I I definitely would have guessed like $25,000. I have no <laughs> metric of value on these things. So I'm going to say $1,250. That's fair. You um, think there's like $50 million in props from Spider-Man 3 sitting right? You think <laughs> like that total not. asset, yes, not a spider suit, a whole but just here. signs from the background of scenes. Also, are, I, there's like is, 50 million This is actually how the mob money launders is they just buy props for exorbitant prices sure. uh, to launder their deals. And the eBay seller's name is uh, Tony Escalieri on underscore 09. <laughs> so it's pretty obvious. No, but uh, the fact that there must be fewer of these signs than there were Wonka bars is another thing playing and there's a little bit of scarcity mindset i think that could play into this so 1250 final answer yeah no that's good and i mean full disclosure everybody was considerably closer than they were last question so we're already <laughs> we're already getting calibrated here the asking price for this sign 750 dollars fuck uh so close race aaron was just a, a smidge closer so aaron gets the point there Not bad. um that's yeah, an insane amount of money to ask for, for that. that fucking sign. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I mentioned it, but it's uh, 30 inches by 20 inches, bigger than your average ordinary sure. everyday spider sign. And it says, we clap for Spidey. It says, we clap. There are hands right. on it. Um, in any case, so yeah, seek that out. Purchase it, dear listener, if you feel so inclined. I don't fucking know. Uh, number three, from the item description. Up for auction, uh, there is a buy it now price, but the description says up for auction is a Dementor toy prop from the film Jingle All the Way, 
starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sinbad, Phil Hartman, and Rita Wilson. It was obtained from production after filming had wrapped. It is in good condition with very minimal wear. The Dementor toy is not a solid figure, but made from vacuform. Uh, a great rare item for a collector or a fan of the film. And I will add, just because it's not here in the description, I will add that the photo of it online shows the the figure included in the appropriately branded Dementor toy box, just like you see in the movie. So with all that being said, what is the listed buy it now price for this prop, Harry? But if I open it up, it's going to be speaking Spanish and then it's going to fall apart immediately, right? Yeah. That's how they It's get fun you. and educational. <laughs> Um, I'm gonna go with uh shit. Um, it costs more than shit. Three hundred dollars is what I'm gonna say about that one. All right, three hundred dollars locking it now in. If, oh. Now, if it was Booster, that would be something else. But nobody likes Booster. Uh, <laughs> I, you know what? I I clap for Booster. Um, crossing streams there, Aaron. What did you? What did? What do? What do you think about the Dementor toy? So I haven't seen that film. That is like, is it what? Can I have any sort of context on what the Dementor? Uh, what is? That? I, I'll give you. I'll give you one sentence. So, Jingle All the Way is about uh, a father, um, somehow played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, seeking yeah. out a toy to win over his son. He's got a tough relationship. That's the one. Yeah. So it's the the toys Turbo Man Dementor is the villain the bad of guy. Turbo Turbo Man. Yeah. So there I, are different character okay. toys floating around. Okay, I, I that that's kind of what I thought. It, something like that. Here's the thing: I think that like a toy that is like, or like a movie prop that is like a toy in a box, that feels like it it commands a higher price than like a Spidey sign or whatever. I'm gonna say one thousand one hundred dollars. I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. Some right. some comic book nerd guy is is eyeing that one. I think quite possibly. Um, $1,100, locking it in. And Jason, are you that nerdy comic book guy eyeing that? What's your, your, your guess for this? You can feel free to answer any of those or both. Uh, Harry's guess was, was it 400? Uh, Harry's guess was 300. 300. I'm going to go $750. I, I, the fact that it says that it was obtained after production with no uh direct like <laughs> provenance here i've watched enough antiques roadshow to know that provenance matters uh i'm gonna say 750 hey well uh ebay user tony mastacoli uh 420 <laughs> asked that uh, you asked no questions about how that figure was obtained uh but <laughs> but tony is asking 1500 dollars for this Whoa. particular toy so yep. uh so Aaron, Aaron is closer, uh, closest to that yet again. Qu- quick look, uh, quick look at the scoreboard. Yeah. Aaron with two, Harry with one. Jason uh, looking to get on the board. Still got uh, a couple Big opportunities. Uh, Bibbidi bobbidi. Uh, number four from the item description, and I quote: "Blood vine prop used on screen in the classic sci-fi film War of the Worlds." So remember the tripods had that like blood vines. Oh wow! Um, uh, comes with certificate of authenticity. This is still part of the item description. Feels really odd, almost like it's real. Uh, <laughs> from my personal collection, and still and still quoting, a great display piece for any home or office. No. Close quote. Uh, how much do you think a Bloodvine prop from War of the Worlds is going for, Harry? Man, I... I really have no metric for this because I used to think that maybe it had something to do with the popularity, but now I think that the popularity of the movie has nothing to do with this, and just people who collect movie props are just is it a cool fucking prop? crazy? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say eight hundred dollars for this one. 
All right, eight hundred dollars. Uh, over to Aaron, you bl- bloodvine fiend. You, what do you? <laughs> did you think? say how big it was? I did not. Okay. Um, right. I wouldn't know how to begin describing the size of a, a bloodvine. A bloodvine, sure. It's bl- it's bloodvine sized. Okay. Yeah, I imagine you had like a like a a room full of like plant like a green room in your house, and you just like slip that one. You know what I mean? You're like in <laughs> sure. between plants, just like just don't tell anybody, just don't explain it. Just yeah, dear listener, Aaron is moving his hand up and down to gauge how tall a bloodvine typically is <sighs> yeah. in a in a greenhouse. I think we did that um, last episode or something. You did good, 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 good visual comment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah Listen good. to our previous episodes. I have um, no. Fun. Please continue. I'm gonna say. I think if it's like a big blood vine, it'd be a lot, but it was like a small blood vine. I'm going to say, um, I'm just going to say $500. I don't, I don't think that's like too, although certificate of authenticity. Ooh, I'm going to say 500, 500. All right. 500. Gotcha. And Jason, how much do you think this blood vine is going for uh, in this dealer's mind? Uh, Karen, um, we've been hearing some reports around the office about, uh, you know, murmurs of downsizing and of, you know, resource reallocation and, Unfortunately, we have to. Um, we've had to make some heart. Oh, oh, that that's that's my that's my blood vine from uh, <laughs> from the 2006 Steven Spielberg film War of the We Worlds. have fun here. The um, classic I'm sci-fi to film. Decorate my office, okay? I, I'm I, allowed to decorate. I'm, I'm sorry. My yes, you have lost your job, but I do have the certificate of authenticity. If you want to see, um, I. I, I don't know if, if it, are you really 99 that is props. that is the way that if, if your is. boss is one of those guy who like <laughs> decorates his office all wacky and then you're getting fired and there's like a fucking <laughs> wacky fine. poster in the back you gotta be like like a Star Wars Mandalorian bobbleheads and shit you gotta be like <laughs> fucking asshole baby Yoda with his <laughs> coffee mug is yeah imagine getting fired by a guy and there's a baby Yoda in the background I oh my god <sighs> well Karen I'm sorry you have lost your job but I will inform you that I paid $850 for this blood vine and the certificate of okay. authenticity is hanging next to it. $850. Um, shout out to, uh, to Karen's, was it Karen who owned the blood vine or Karen's employer in this? Karen's in this employer Karen's was employer. fired. Karen's Karen's employer. Was being right. fired. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Just making sure. So <laughs> yeah, Karen is, Karen is not shoveling the blood vine prop out of her. That's very thoughtful. Um, Karen's employer who seems to be a real shithead, Paid two hundred ninety nine dollars and ninety nine cents for this bloodline deal. Uh, nice. Yeah, Aaron picking up his his third point. Still very much an opportunity for for everybody else to to get on the board get here. Second, there's maybe there's an element of bragging rights. We'll we'll see what happens. But for this fifth and final item description, buckle up. Bit of a doozy. Fast and Furious, Hobbs and Shaw. This sale is for a snowflake super virus extractor device. Remember the plot of that movie? Nope. Okay. Used by Hattie Shaw as the team travels to Samoa to Luke Hobbs's home to have his brother Jonas repair the virus extractor. This is all in caps, by the way. To save Hattie Shaw and the world from a man-made virus screen used and with prop store certificate of authenticity has some signs of production use as pictured. That was a run-on sentence, but they go on to say, This black and silver color rubber device features cylindrical accents. One side features a series of orange plastic tubes, which lead to a black plastic detail. Also included is a gray resin wrist cuff with movable clasps and a series of clear plastic tubing, as well as a black nylon duffel bag. Uh, this, exhibits- this, this is a like an adult video store description of a sex toy. This is no longer about movie props. And, and furthermore, mm. Jason, it exhibits signs of use and wear from throughout production. Mm. End quote. Um, yeah, still. 
I'm not going to lie, movable clasps, uh, orange plastic tubes. Do I want to buy this? I'm just really uh, getting into the weeds <laughs> here. But um, how much, the ultimate question on everybody's mind, how much is being asked for the extractor device from Hobbs and Shaw, Harry? Going to go with a cool $2,000, Cody. A cool $2,000, Cody. All right. Marked it down. Aaron, over to you. What's the asking price for so this? So I'm at I'm at three points in this game, right? You were at three points in this game, and you and could be at four points question. if you get this right. Yes. Okay, but but Harry is at one point, and Jason is at zero points. Is that am I correct? correct. Just, yep, you're correct. Uh, so I'm going to say I'm going to throw this one. I'm going to say that this is worth zero dollars because Hobbs and Shaw is a shit film, <laughs> and I don't respect it uh, enough to to put a dollar amount on it. Nobody should be paying for a prop from the film Hobbs and fucking Shaw. Uh, so I would assume. It's some sort of give some sort of charity thing they're giving away, maybe. Uh, so I'm going to go zero dollars. All right, guess we'll find out here in a few seconds. But first, Jason, what do you think the asking price is for this snowflake virus extractor device? There, there's clasps, a gray resin wrist cuff. What, what do you think this is going for? Hods and Shaw. I'm going to say ninety-five dollars USD. What? <laughs> I mean, I mean, like you're I, right. would, I thought it was, it'd be funny it if I would have remembered movie. I thought it was going to be funny if I won it despite doing zero dollars because you both did like two thousand. But no, nope, never. I don't I, think I, it's never I'm I'm trying. I'm gaming for my. I'm trying to get on the board, dog. I'm just trying to make an appearance. <laughs> just trying to matter. The actual asking pi- price. Price. The actual asking price for the snowflake man-made virus extractor thing that Vanessa Kirby as Hattie Shaw totes around with her on her globetrotting adventure with Hobbs and Shaw, the two biggest shitheads known to mankind, mm-hmm. uh, is $2,999.99. Harry's closest gets the point. Final scores read as follows. Uh, three for Aaron, two for Harry. Jason is very pretty. Th- thank you, everybody. This has been us waiting for prop man aaron the 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 prop off platform is yours please have at it um i you know you know this this was a this was a good one i like the the i like i like the concept here cody give you a give you maybe the the pun for the name is a bit of a stretch but other than that all it's a you know good 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 work you know how does he keep coming up with these it's amazing i don't know i i think he i think he like scientifically uh, like devises these these complex formulas for for Cody's Noties games in which Jason will never get a point. Like that's his entire goal is like, is this something Jason can score a point in? No. Okay, then I'll then I will do it. Um, that's kind of the only explanation that I can come up with for for Jason's performance and I'm, I'm recent years. That, that um, theory too. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say cocaine, but no, your idea is also totally fine. Thanks it everybody. It could be that. Yeah. Uh, if you are upset about the pun, listener or Aaron, uh, from this week, you should go back to last week's episode where the Doom trilovation for our. Oh yeah, I got, I got, I got, I got, I got to throw at some some other ones. Everyone, they're not always gonna sing. You gotta, they're you gotta get like some dad puns. Like dads would. You gotta get some stinkers in there every once in a while, so that, the, that when one. it's really good, it it lands. Yeah, in, you're taking the Hitchcock in an approach. Way. <laughs> exactly. I was thinking sure. the exact same thing. The, the shotgun it. approach to Cody's Noties puns. Just just one of these will Listen, man, we, we've made like 300 something episodes of this podcast. I'm going to run out of juice eventually. I'm, How I'm many just, puns are I'm there to make? One innocent man. 
He's almost uh, out. Cody's no exactly. Ace. Try love to get away for a little while. That's getaway trivia from oh, we don't uh, episode have to, 227. We don't have to do this. Uh, Cody's notice. Toe love. Johnny toe trivia from our episode of the hero That's trio. That's not bad. That's not bad. Uh, I, like, Unfortunately, we've, we've puns do need like a phonetic. You know what I mean? Like that is very. That close is the definition the of word. them. Yeah, for sure. But <laughs> right. But like toe love is like it's it's. The, the consonants are different enough to where like the pun doesn't work, but like it's, it's very close. You know what I mean? This is a certified well, Aaron Grossman moment. I got to say, thank you so much for listening to tribal. Thank you. Literal roundtable podcast where we uh, listen to uh, each other. Talk about movie. We, we all saw, um, check out the Trilons website, uh, including uh, uh, the links in the show notes for tickets to the currently running Parker Posey series. Um, and other films playing at the Trilon this summer. Check it out at Trilon.org. Check us out at Trilove Podcast on Twitter. Check me out on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I've been Harry Mackin. You can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. My name is Aaron. Harvey, please. Give me a give me a follow. It's been uh, the last twenty follows have been, I believe, just porn bots. Despite my understanding being that they're gone off the platform, but it's you know Alicia Ray nine seven six seven four six seven nine eight, which is fine for my follower count. Oh, no, but I, I know I, you know I could use more actual interactions. Yeah, yeah, they never respond back. I don't know. I keep DMing them and they keep trying to get me to <laughs> hop onto some other website that seems suspicious. I don't. I don't know. So follow me on Twitter. Oh, howdy. I didn't see you sneak up on me there. But if you'd like, you're welcome to share my campfire with me. I was just fixing to give me some grub. Beans. <laughs> Fuck. God damn it. I was looking at you so <laughs> Let me do this again. Let me do nope, it again. No, nope, no. Nope. Cut nope. that off. That's perfect. No, nope, nope, That's so much it. better like that. Oh, man. Right. I've got, no, I got the whole but fucking thing because it leads it. And he's going to get this in here, too. He will. You know what I mean? When I, when I fuck it up, it always gets cut. But the more I go, the less chance I have of this getting cut. So I'm no, going to start against it all. <clears throat> well, howdy. I didn't see you sneak up on me there. But if you'd like, you're welcome to share my campfire with me. I was just fixing to get me some grub. Beans. I love beans. Big, fat, hot, juicy beans. Now, don't get me going on beans or I'll be jabbering away till the sun comes up. But you know, now that I've got your ear, there is a story I wouldn't mind sharing with you. It's a tall tale that grows taller with each passing year. It's the story of Blaine. <laughs>